Would you open God's precious holy word to Luke 23? We've come to verses 50 through 56. From Isaiah 53 in the first part of verse 9. Vaitin et re shaim kifro vait ashir bumtaf. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. We're continuing the theme here. Of the truth that our sovereign God is in absolute control. It would have seemed that the leaders, the religious and civil leaders of Israel were in charge or that Rome was in charge. No. Our mighty God is in charge of the whole thing. This is a, we started out, you may recall when we got to the part of the passion of Christ, we started out in Isaiah 53 to show that God had already made all of the arrangements. The covenant that the Father had made with the Son would stand even as it required the death of the son for the ransom to be paid and that his own might be redeemed. And so we've come really to this part in Isaiah 53 and we take note of how this simple part of this verse 9, this first part, is completely fulfilled here at the direction of God the Father. I want to share my personal experience briefly with you regarding what I firmly believe is God's charge on my life to preach just through the Bible, just take it all, one verse at a time, word at a time. Took me a little over eight years to preach through the Bible the first time, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. In the course of two doctoral studies, I learned about research. Started out with qualitative analysis, then moved to quantitative and then mixed methods. There's a way to research things and to research it as thoroughly as you can. To find the truth, to find the fact of something. And if it's not a fact, then it's no good. It's null. It's a null hypothesis. So, the first time I preached through the Bible, one thing became clear to me, and I've shared this with you before, but I want to clarify it again today. That the Bible is absolutely, in its original text, in its original text, 
The Bible is absolutely infallible and inerrant. It is flawless. It stands any test that has been placed against it through time. It has never failed and will never fail. Now some people take a translation and a word or a phrase from a translation and taking that they try to undo the scriptures but you can't do it when you go back to the original text knowing that God froze the Old Testament in time because at the, at the conclusion of the last prophet there was no more classical, no more classical Hebrew. It, it floated into Aramaic. And then at the close of the New Testament era with the death of the apostles, there was no more Koine Greek. So the New Testament is frozen in time. Can't change the words. English is fluid. You can change the meaning of a word from one generation to the next. The word gay, for example. But not with the old original text of the scriptures. It is there. It is infallible. You cannot shake it. You cannot move it and you cannot change it. Thus it's remained unchanged. And I became convinced after that first adventure of preaching through the Bible that the Bible is absolutely inerrant, infallible, and there's nothing that can be thrown against it. I took all of the arguments and there are high-minded arguments through time. There are still arguments about it. But they fall. They cannot be proven. None of them. I recently read a long treatise on some new thing that had been apparently discovered in the dreams of scientists that would have undone creationism and all this thing. But then you read the, you read the study closely and they have these words of doubt that are thrown in there. You know, oh, this is the way it is. But then there are words like apparently or something like that. And when you read the study in its entirety, and then you study the background and the biases of the people who are doing the study, the whole thing collapses and there's nothing there. Nothing at all. Took me a little over 30 years to preach through the Bible the second time. I guess preachers get longer winded as they go. And the thing that I became convinced of as I preached through the Bible, and I wasn't looking for this, it just happened in my spirit. That Jesus Christ is in every phrase and on every page and you can see him everywhere and the whole book is about him. History is his story as it's been said. And I saw Christ in Lamentations as clearly as I saw him in Ephesians. I saw him in Proverbs just as surely as I saw him in the Gospel of John. Christ was everywhere, all the way through permeating the scriptures. And now, I'm on my third time through. And I've told you, I've asked the Lord to let me live long enough to preach through the Bible three times. And so I'm really taking my time on this third one. <laughs> I wasn't looking for this as I began my third journey through the scriptures. But all I can see 
is the sovereignty of God. Absolutely sovereign. Leaves nothing to chance, not a thing. And we've talked about that as we've gone through our studies in, these, in my time with you here. The two or three years I've been here. It's no different today. What God works out in time, God has purposed in eternity. It cannot be stopped. That's why the second psalm says God laughs. When people try to stand and come against his Christ. God laughs. We've seen, we saw in, in, in our trip through 1 Samuel, we, you know, we always do it, the Old Testament comes from the Hebrew, and we saw, and this just makes me want to sit down and have a good time with God, because God cursed for those who don't come on Wednesday nights. God, when, when the Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant, God cursed them with hemorrhoids. That's the truth. That's what the Bible says. That's the, I think the king. I think translators try to be a little gentler with that and they call it tumors or something. Hemorrhoids. And so to escape the curse, the, the, the Philistines offered a, like, a golden likeness of a hemorrhoid for every city that God cursed where they passed the ark from one place to another. I could enjoy sitting down with God and talking about stuff like that. Well, here's the point. When we studied in 1 Samuel all of that, God did it all himself. They took the Ark of the Covenant. God didn't have hands or feet like Dagon did. But God defeated the Philistines. God doesn't need, you know what? God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. The ascetic of God. God stands alone to himself. It's just by grace and love for his own that he lets us do what we do and have an existence. And that's what he's given to us. Now his own will be purchased and redeemed even though his creation collapsed into sin. That will not stay the purpose of God. It will not. And God said so all along the way. And this is just one little example of the sovereignty of God. You study the, the, death, burial and, the death and burial of Christ they numbered him. They numbered him with criminals. What did they do with criminals who were crucified in the Roman era? They cared nothing for them. It took a criminal, somebody on a cross that I've read, it took them maybe two days to finally die. It was awful. And then when the criminal was dead, they just tore his body off the cross and threw it in a hole somewhere. In Jesus' day, probably cast them down into the valley of Hinnom, the only Gehenna. 
and just let nastiness take over, defile the bodies of the criminals. This is what they intended to do. But Jesus was in control. You'll remember we studied it. The events were like this. They came to arrest Christ. We learned from John's gospel. When asked, we seek, when they said, we seek Jesus of Nazareth, after Jesus asked them, who do you seek? We seek Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I'm he. When he said that, you remember, all 600 plus soldiers fell down. He knocked them down with a thought. They didn't take him to the cross. He went to the cross. They didn't kill him. He gave up his spirit. And so the passion begins and he's nailed to the cross. And we're going to talk about that and the events that followed as we consider the truth that it was the father who buried the son. So let's look at it together. Behold a man named Joseph. This is the only time in the Bible that this guy's mentioned. Only time. You won't find him anywhere else in the Gospels. Being also a good and righteous man, having not consented to the counsel and their deed, from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. That's a good thing. He's a believer. That's sort of developed in the language that's used. Having gone to Pilate, he asked for the body of Jesus. Now let's look at what Matthew says about this same guy from Matthew 27. Evening now having arrived, a certain rich man, now we learn something about him. He's rich. He's wealthy. A certain rich man came from Arimathea named Joseph who also himself was discipled to Jesus. So he's a disciple of Jesus. He, having gone to Pilate, asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded it to be given up. Now from Mark 15. Evening already having arrived, it was the preparation day, the day before Sabbath. Joseph, having come from Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was also himself waiting for the kingdom of God, having boldness, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So he's a council member. He's one of the Sanhedrin. He's rich. And one of them was a believer. Okay, so then from John. Then after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, though concealed through the fear, fear of the Jews, who is kind of a secret disciple, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave permission. Therefore, he came and took his body away. Now, I didn't put it in here, but on down in there, uh, it may be even the next verse uh, or so, one Nicodemus joined him in this, and Nicodemus brought spices. And so it was Joseph and Nicodemus who were at that point attending to the body of Jesus to put the spices that uh, uh, Nicodemus brought and to wrap him in linen cloths. Now we're back to our scripture in Luke 23. Having taken it down, he wrapped it in a linen cloth and placed it in a tomb and cut it in a rock in which no one had yet been laid. 
And it was the day of preparation, and Sabbath was just beginning. Then the women who had come out of Galilee with him, having followed, saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then having returned, they prepared spices and anointing oils, and indeed on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. So they're not going to come back to the tomb of Jesus until after his resurrection. After the Sabbath is over, if they come the first day of the week, well, they may as well take their stuff back. He's not there anymore when they come back. But we'll see that, God willing, along the way in our continuing study as we complete Luke. I want to bring your mind back to some of the things we've, always, we've already talked about. But here's the point. If I was in the heart of God when God made a covenant with Jesus to give him his own, Christ said in the Gospel of John, all that the Father has given to me will come to me. And all of those who the Father has given to me, I will not turn one of them away. Not one. Now in the course of life, something divine and supernatural happened to me and it happened only by grace because I was otherwise dead in trespass and sin and could not do a thing for myself. Namely, God, according to Peter, God caused me to be born again. He gave to me spiritual life. And thus, having been awakened to that spiritual life, I saw Christ. I saw light. There was no more darkness. And in seeing Christ, I ran to him. He, he gave me the gift of faith. And because I believe in Jesus as my Savior, I'm not perfect. I won't be perfect until by his grace God glorifies me in a day that is yet to come. But I have the gift of salvation by the grace of God. I didn't earn it and I can't keep it myself. Christ died to save me. He lives to keep me and he's coming again for me. So then I'm saved and kept by the grace of God. Therefore, if I was on his mind in a realm that is outside of time and space when the Father and the Son entered into a covenant, then I've always been on his mind. And what happened at the cross what happened leading up to the cross? What happened after the cross? Those things are personal to me because it was for me. I'm in that book. That was before the foundation of the world. I'm in that book. Christ said to the Philadelphians, it cannot be blotted out, my name. It cannot be blotted out. There are no erasers on the end of the quill of the bookkeeper in heaven. 
who keeps the book of life? None. So the funeral of Jesus is as personal to me as anything. Because this is for me. A sinner. The sinner. It's all for me. You can say the same thing if you have faith in Christ. This is something that is yours that God gave to you in a way and in a time that you cannot explain or understand, nor can I. It's incomprehensible. God simply sums it up like this to the prophet. My ways are not your ways. My ways are above your ways. That's just an easy way of saying, I did it because I am that I am. I don't need you, but you need me. And I have made you to be one of mine. And this is why we worship. This is why we can engage the beautiful words that are sung in a time of worship and praise. This is why we can pray so fervently and deeply. Even that is a time of praise. This is why we can listen to the beautiful tones of the instruments as they come together and they blend and they make melody. And it's like, it's like my spirit enters into all of that and it becomes a sweet smelling savor to the Lord because I praise God Almighty who has attended to me from everlasting to everlasting. I will spend the ages of the ages studying that, learning about it, and find it most likely into the millions of years of my study, yet still to be inexhaustible. The riches of the grace of God. So then, the funeral of Jesus. This is his personal event. We're going to kind of backtrack a little bit here. The day is the preparation day to the Passover. Christ could not keep hanging there on the Sabbath as the Passover time had come to the Jews in that day. It was a day of preparation. The Jews used to make a, I guess, maybe they still do, make a game out of it. There could be nothing with leaven anywhere, so the kids would play a game and, and get a little brush and something to catch all of the crumbs in the corner of the, the corners of the houses and to see who could get the most crumbs and then they'd burn it because it had leaven. It was a day of preparation. The day was planned. This is God's lamb. This is the time of Passover. And it moves according to the infallible and sovereign plan of our great and mighty God. So this is the day of his funeral. There are always those who are careless. In this case, mobs of people, Roman soldiers, they could, somebody died, so what? A lot of people feel that way today about the death of Christ. 
who according to Paul laid aside his glory became a man for me. So then he could write to the Corinthians, he who knew no sin became sin, was made to be sin so that I might become the righteousness of God in him. I was powerless in that. I couldn't do anything about that. This must be a good message. There's a mighty rushing wind. I'm waiting for the tongues of fire, man. That's okay. It's all right. Just messing with you. I appreciate those guys back. This is the... If you could see the network of wires, you would wonder how anything ever comes out right. And so I love those guys and I appreciate what they do. So many people careless about the death of Christ. But then there was companions. Remember those two guys? It's like a microcosm of humanity itself. Here's Christ in the middle on one side, the blasphemer, the man filled with railing mockery, taunting Christ, even though he's dying. One of the blackest feelings I've ever had in my life. And I remember one in particular. When this dying man's cousin, they grew up together. He loved his cousin. But his cousin had never received Christ. He was, he was, he was a, he turned out to be somebody that was uh, just the epitome of unbelief. The book of Acts, I think, calls the men of a baser sort. More than once we stood, he had terrible cancer and he was dying. This was in the 80s. There, were, there weren't the advances then that they have now. We would plead with him and we'd pray. And he'd tell us to get out if we were going to pray. Go pray in the hall. I don't want you to hear you pray. I wasn't there, but... The, the man who was my church member was there to watch him die. He wept and he said, as far as I know, he's in hell. He never called upon Christ. And he cursed the name of Christ and would not have people to stand over him and pray. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. How reprobate those who are in darkness and who are fallen can go. There was that guy on one side. But we talked about that other guy on the other side. He started out in unbelief and even joined in the blasphemy until a particular time. It was the moment God called him. And he awakened to his situation. And he confessed to his friend on the other side, we deserve this. We're sinners. This man has done nothing wrong. Please remember me. You remember over his 
cross, king of the Jews. Remember me. When you come into your kingdom and Christ gave him the guarantee, that day they would be in paradise together. The companions on one side representative of the reprobate fallen humanity. And on the other side, let's say that guy couldn't do anything. See, we're all that way. We can't do anything to save ourselves. In a sense, we're all like that guy on the cross. Couldn't, he couldn't open up a scroll of, of Scripture. He couldn't crawl down out of that place and, and go talk to a preacher or anybody. He was just, but what else did he need? He only needed the call and approval of Christ. And it was his so there were his companions on that day, the events of the day, all right? Christ goes to the cross. He's nailed to the cross. He's lifted up on the cross. He prays for the Father to forgive those who are doing this to him. Then the darkness came. It wasn't an eclipse. We talked about this because it was Passover. There would be a full moon that night, so the moon was on the other side of the world. And then Christ was forsaken by the Father. Three hours. Darkness, outer darkness, hell. Hell is separation from God. Hell <clears throat> fell upon the Son of God, something he had never experienced. <laughs> my God, my God, why have you deserted me? Why have you left me? Why have you forsaken me? People couldn't see anything. Utter darkness in a day with no electricity, maybe a torch lit up here and there. No one could do anything about it. The centurion made his great profession of faith. This is the Son of God. That guy had been with Christ probably all week because of the danger of riots and so forth and people wondering if Christ was the Messiah in a time of Passover where millions of Jews would have been in and around Jerusalem. But it wasn't just that. The veil of the temple was torn in half. Now, Christ was on the cross and the darkness came from noon to three. Okay, so from three to five, now you think about this. This is Passover time. Millions of Jews, how many lambs were to be killed they would do the slaughter from three until five in the evening, but they didn't have any light. Where'd that lamb go? <laughs> I can't even find the altar. So I would say sunset was coming and they had to get through and they were backed up. But you know what? It didn't matter because the veil of the temple had been torn in half. 
There was no need for a slaughter of sheep anymore. There was no need of a priest. There was no need of the temple. There was no need of the Holy of Holies. So God ripped the veil in half. That's the other thing, the final thing. The Bible says in Matthew's gospel, more than 500 came out of their graves after Christ was resurrected. Think about that. Christ, it's my belief that when Christ ascended into heaven, he took first fruits with him. No wonder they gazed into heaven, not just to see the re-glorified Christ, but the first fruits. That's my belief. There's no word in Matthew 27 that having come up out of their graves, they were required to go back again. In that case, I understand about Lazarus and some others, but this was a special event. The power of the resurrection of Christ, Romans 8 says, the same spirit that raised him from the dead will raise me from the dead. The funeral of Jesus, the events, and there were the haters, the religious leaders, they couldn't stand him. He just preached grace, just come to me. You don't have to work all of these burdensome things. Just have faith. Have faith. And there were the lovers. They, fought, they followed from far away. But we're going to see in the remainder of Luke, God works all of this for his glory. And they were the foundation of the church. But finally, there was the burial. We started out with that passage in Isaiah, remember? The father buried the son. Joseph of Arimathea, bless his heart, he may have thought he did. Nicodemus may have thought that he helped in doing it. The father buried the son. The world tried to number him with criminals. You know what they did? Okay, man, Jesus, he, he died too soon. They're not supposed to die this quick in crucifixion. But he gave up. He, it was finished. He said it. It is finished. It is accomplished. It's done. He paid. Oh, he paid for all my sins. And he finished the payment. So then, these two guys on either side of Christ we're still alive. And so it's like, it's like Pilate gets in kind of a panic and the, these other guys, I said, well, you know, he's going to take his body off, off the cross. We still got two guys there and the, man, the, the Sabbath is coming. And we'll go break their legs. Break their legs. You know how they did that? The Romans knew how to do this stuff. They took an iron sledgehammer about six or eight whacks up one leg and about six or eight whacks down the other as hard as they could swing it. And before too long, the damage that had been done would bring death more quickly. We saw in the scriptures, they wanted to number him like he was a piece of trash. They wanted to throw him in the Valley of Hinnom. They wanted to mistreat and defile him in his death. 
They wanted to number him with the wicked. But it would not be done. A rich man, a council member, Joseph of Arimathea, the Bible we saw in one of the scriptures, I think it was in Mark, he was emboldened to go in before Pilate. This took courage. This is a guy who previously worshiped Christ in secret. Not anymore. You know, there comes a time when somebody has to stand up for Jesus. And Nicodemus stepped out of his shadow. He said, I'm going to help you. I'll bring the spices. You bring the linen cloth. And we will honor him. The Bible says that he was buried in a rich man's tomb where no one had ever been laid fresh. Nobody in there with him. Ossuaries, they now back in the day, they waited until you got good and dried out when you're in the tomb. They'd open the tomb and they'd take your bones and just cram all your bones into a small box. So they'd get some more relatives in there. Nothing like that had ever had was a fresh cut, fresh hewn tomb. In the place where rich people are buried. This is where the father buried his son. They would number him with the wicked in his grave. No. But he was buried with the rich. Why? Because God said so. That's why. There was no defilement. Our great Savior, our great Christ paid the price for us who are his. And there he was laid. Well, the story doesn't stop there. You know, they're going to ask Pilate to seal the tomb. Like, like the world can do something about it. We'll talk about that more as we get into the rest of Luke's gospel. And finish our story of Jesus would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And He came into this world to save sinners. If you will admit that you're a, a sinner and in confession of sin call on Him to save you, He'll save you. Bound by His Word to save you if you come sincerely. Only God can give you that faith. Only God can draw you to Himself. Come to Christ today as the Lord calls. Maybe you're here and you're already a believer, but you want to come and be a part of this congregation. In the act of standing in just a moment, in the act of standing, you just come and take me by the hand and say, Pastor, I want to be a part of this church and we'll take care of all of the details of membership. Father God in heaven, bless this invitation as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. Would you come?